Oprah's conversation with Frank Bruni is part of Oprah Daily's The Life You Want class. You can watch the full class and participate in others in the monthly series on OprahDaily.com. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Hello, 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 and welcome, everybody. Uh, Hi. We have people with us from all around the world and from all corners of the United States. This is so fun. Uh, Everybody ready to talk vulnerability. I wrote that what I wanted from today's class was to offer you all aha moments that leave you feeling fully ready to become more vulnerable with the people around you as well as with yourself. It seems that our culture and our vocabulary has put such a negative connotation on the word vulnerability. You all notice that? That's why so many people are anxious or fearful of sharing and being vulnerable. The dictionary says easily hurt or harmed. Who wants that? Susceptible to physical or emotional attack. Who wants that? It's no wonder so many people have a serious fear of being vulnerable. When really what we mean here is that vulnerability is the opening up of your heart space, allowing others in. And the more we share our truest feelings, our fears, our innermost desires, the more we come to see our own souls reflected in each other. And the things that we are thinking and feeling not only make us who we are, they connect us to each other. There is no emotion you can have that someone else hasn't had or felt. There are situations that life hands us that thrust us into periods of vulnerability. It's less of a choice to be open and more a direct result of circumstances. And that's where we're going to dive in today. I could not be more excited for our guests. I mean, actually, Frank Bruni is one of my favorite people in the world. He doesn't even know this, but I've had a big crush on Frank Bruni for a long time. And Gail knows Frank Brittany, so every time he'd write an article in the New York Times and I would love it, I'd say, I'm going to call him, I'm going to call him, I'm going to call him. And I have his number, but I never called him. So I was talking to Gail today, goes, finally, I'm going to get to meet and talk to Frank Bruni. Uh, He's a New York Times columnist whose experiences span from restaurant critic to White House correspondent to Rome bureau chief. He's just so smart, so wise. And at the age of 52, Frank woke up one morning blind in one eye, and then finds out that the loss of vision he's experienced is really unfixable, and that he has a 40% chance of it happening to the other eye. The vulnerability he experiences is transformative, causing him to look differently at everything and to be more mindful, to actually be more open, to be more grateful. He has a new book out, I just can't say enough about it, titled The Beauty of Dusk, and it so keenly connects to this topic of vulnerability. And I'm excited. So let's all welcome Frank Bruni. Frank! It's so great to be here. Thank you. Uh, So when you woke up that morning in 2017 and found your vision was impaired, at first you just brushed it off. You thought it was the four glasses of wine. 
<laughs> it didn't occur to you that something permanent, I think it was four, right? Four glasses of wine. About that, you yeah, didn't think we'll it say was, four. Yeah, okay. You didn't think it was something that was permanently wrong. Tell us more about what was going through your mind, you know, in that moment where you realize something is off, but you don't want it to be really serious. And so right. you just ignore it. Oh, you know, I, I convinced myself for a few moments that I just needed to clean my glasses more thoroughly. Uh, I convinced myself if I just stepped into the shower and ran water through my eye, it would be okay. And I remember it so well, Oprah, I was at my computer, I was transcribing an interview that I'd just done a few days earlier with the Bush twins, Barbara um, and Jenna Bush Hager, because uh, I was writing something about them. And the words on the screen were, were shimmying and swimming. And I thought, this is just, this is just going to go away at any moment, because I had that foolish boomer sense of invincibility. And then when it didn't go away, I thought, well, I'm just going to go to the doctor tomorrow and I'm going to be told that, you know, this is as simple as taking a pill um, or just waiting another 24 hours. But that's not what happened. Over the next four or five days, I took test after test, uh, gave blood and more blood. And I was told that I'd had a, a kind of stroke that had, that had strangled the blood to my optic nerve behind my right eye. Um, that it had basically ravaged that optic nerve and that there was never going to be any repair for that. Um, and, as, and as you said, the, the even scarier part was I was told there was a significant chance it would happen in the coming months or years to my left eye and that I could be blind. Uh, and I don't think I've ever felt so vulnerable or scared in my life. I wanted to be told there was something I could do to prevent it. I thought, you know, if there's something called eye calisthenics, I'll do eye calisthenics. Uh, but it turned out, no, I could maybe take a baby aspirin a day. I could make sure to stay hydrated. But I was at the mercy of fate, which I think is the very definition of vulnerability in some ways. Mm -hmm. So when you were navigating this, this diagnosis, I know you saw multiple doctors got lots of opinions. And there were doctors you met who ended up being wrong about things and gave you bad advice. I, I, I wanted to share this just because I think so many people, particularly as we age, you're going to have to come in contact with doctors who tell you things or not tell you things about what's going on. And you can't always trust. And you write, it's crucial to approach a relationship with a doctor, any doctor, as a partnership and to consider yourself an equal partner, respectful, but not obsequious, receptive, but skeptical. Tell us a bit more about what had happened and how crucial it is to have an equal partnership with your doctor. Because we've all been in vulnerable moments where the doctor walks in with a look on their face because they're about to give you life-changing news and you're counting on them to help you. I remember I had was diagnosed with a thyroid issue and the doctor just said, young lady, you're going to have to embrace hunger. And, you know, feeling like, okay, is there, is it, so there's nothing else I could do except embrace hunger and not eat. Okay. So tell us what happened with you. Well, um, you had mentioned that a doctor initially said to me there was a 40% chance, according to the literature, that my left eye would go the way of my right eye. Turned out that wasn't true. It turned out um, more doctors thought it was a 20% chance. That was, the sort of, that was the sort of gathered wisdom of the medical community. Some doctors thought it was as low as 15%. And I had to find that out for myself. Now, the doctor I saw first was, was a wonderful person and I think meant well but was just sort of rattling off things quickly as I cycled in and out of an office where there were gonna be a lot of other patients that day. That same doctor told me that I should be careful to fly with oxygen 
for the rest of my life. And that it was as simple as when I made my, my ticket reservation, when I bought my ticket telling the airline to provide me with oxygen, that turned out to be entirely wrong. Wrong that an airline will just do that for you with a request. Um, and wrong, according to other doctors, that I needed to fly with oxygen. So if I hadn't become a, a, an active researcher, an active kind of partner in figuring out what was going on with me and trusted just one expert, I would have been operating on, on some bad advice. And it occurred to me, and I think this is important for everyone to realize, you're one of 15, 20, 25 people that the doctor will see that day. And even the best intentioned doctor is only going to be able to give so much of his or her mind and heart to you. Whereas you are taking, you're, you're the only person you're taking care of to the extent that you're taking care of yourself. So you, you have to really be um, your own advocate. You have to do some of your own research. You have to remember also that your doctor is likely a specialist who's going to see everything about you through the lens of that specialty, whereas you're seeing the whole of you. So for instance, I, I saw some of the best eye doctors in New York. Not one of them ever said to me, now that you've been told you might go blind, how are you doing emotionally and psychologically? Would you like a referral to a mental health professional? That never happened. Not one doctor told me there's a whole field called low vision therapy, where they teach people with compromised eyesight like mine how to make the most of it. I had to learn that on my own. I learned that there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov where I can find out if there are clinical trials being conducted for my malady um, that a doctor might not even know about because the doctor is has his or her eyes on a million things and I have my eyes on me. So that's what I mean about being an equal partner in your care. I thought that was so powerful. And you title chapter two, when one eye closes, another opens. I love that, first of all. But tell us how the other eye opened. This, what happened to me, Oprah, made me um, realize more than anything else in my life that I had a real choice. Um, I had a choice in this situation, but I had a choice in all situations to come. And I wish I'd realized this earlier, that I could focus on what was taken from me, on what I'd lost, or I could focus on what remained. And that by focusing on what remained, um, by connecting with that gratitude, I was going to be a much stronger person. I was going to be a more contented person. I was going to be a better person. And, you know, I, I'm a writer and um, I initially was devastated by the fact that it was it was taking me longer to read things it was taking much more care and effort i was making typos uh, i used to be the cleanest writer in the world and i would look at a paragraph or a page that i had just written and there would be all these typos that had never been there before and that was because of my vision and i almost uh got inconsolable about that but then i realized that with a subtle shift of perspective and this is what i mean about the other eye opening I was still getting to write. I still had a career as a writer. I had editors who wanted my work and, and readers who were willing to read me. And so what if it took me a little longer? So what if it was harder? My privileges, my blessings, what remained, so much greater than what I'd lost. And that's what I mean about the other eye opening. And also opened in ways that you saw other people who were also suffering. I mean, I remember later in the book, you talk about I think you're in a park in New York City and you notice all these elderly people in wheelchairs. Can you tell us about that moment and how your perception of how you saw other people changed? 
Yeah, I, I, I didn't even notice those people before. You know, I used to go, um, uh, I got a dog in the midst of all of this, which was one of the best decisions I made. And Regan? whether I was running, <laughs> Regan, yeah. And whether I was running with her or taking a run by myself, you know, I, I really wouldn't often notice so much of the human scenery around me. And after this happened to me, and if I did notice it, I, I didn't notice it in the right way. So sometimes I guess maybe I noticed um, elderly people uh, in their wheelchairs being pushed by someone in the park. And if I noticed that, I probably felt a pang of sadness for them. After this happened, I kind of looked at them more carefully and I said, well, wait a second, I, I can focus on the fact that they're in a wheelchair or I can focus on the fact that they're out here still in the mix of things in almost every case positioned before some beautiful scene, uh, before a slice of, new, of majestic New York, you know, wrapped in a blanket, enjoying what was still available to them, even in a state that we normally consider diminished. Um, I don't like the word diminished anymore. I think we all end up, uh, as we age, uh, certainly if we meet affliction early in life, we end up with new parameters but I don't like to think of those as limits and I don't like to think of those as diminishments. And I saw these older people in a new way. And for me, that was a, was a metaphor for all of us. So what word do you now use? I, huh, I, think, I think of my life as having different contours. I think of the contours of my life as having changed, but I do not think of them as limits. Because again, I think for, for whatever I can't do anymore, and I can still do most things, or for whatever takes me a little bit more effort. There's, there's so many more gifts I've been given that remain that are untouched by any of this. And one of the lessons I've learned that I wish I'd learned so much earlier in life, and this is a, this is a basic thing, but I don't think we remind ourselves of it. Uh, I think we ignore it. We don't control an enormous amount of what happens to us. You know, broken bones, broken hearts, these are going to happen and we're going to have very little agency in them and we're going to have to deal with them. But we control the most important thing of all. We control how we respond. We control our outlook and our attitude about all of that. And it's such a basic thing. It's such a, it's such a fundamental building block of happiness. And I'm, I'm ashamed it took me so many decades of my life to get there and realize it. But I, I think about that every day now. And, um, and every day is brighter and better for that. Well, it's so interesting because I think those of you who have copies of The Beauty of Dusk and have read it understand exactly what 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 Frank is expressing here, because I think no matter what now shows up for any of us who are reading your book, we'll have a different approach to it. That's what the beauty of your you sharing your story and being vulnerable with all of us certainly has done for for me is allowed me to see, ah, your whole life doesn't have to change. You can make an adjustment. And in the case of your friend, Juan Jose, who said that he just looks at the blindness as a characteristic, right? Said to you that, yeah. uh, go ahead, talk about that. Oh, he's, he's an amazing man. And one of the things I did after this happened, um, and it's what I read about and describe in the book, is when I met people, I began talking to them, opening up to them and inviting them to open up to me in a whole new way. And Juan Jose, who's a, who's a, a, a diplomat from Mexico, very high level diplomat, um, was one of the new people I met through friends and he happens to be blind. And he does not treat that as something to be grieved and he almost never did. And, and what really, really impressed me about him 
is what he has taken away from the experience is an enormous measure of confidence and also pride. So he doesn't mm -hmm. focus on what has been made more difficult in his life. He focuses on his sense of accomplishment for managing those difficulties. And, and as I, I watched him, as I watched him do that, as I listened to him talk about that, I thought, I, I thought we have to change that saying, when God gives you lemons, make lemonade. I think when God gives yeah. you lemons, take a bow. <laughs> wow. I love the quote, though, that, that you put in the book, where Juan Jose said, I never saw it as a burden. I saw it as a characteristic. Wow. I think every single person can take something in their life and apply this mindset to the way they're thinking about it. What struck you most when talking with him? Well, it was the sense of pride and confidence that he had. Um, it was also just he had this he has a talent for optimism. And I think it is a talent where he just points himself uh, toward the positive of every situation. I was also struck by something else and not just in him, but in almost everybody else I talked to, um, you know, for the book, some, some, or some people I talked to and they never even made it into the book. Everyone I talked to who'd been through some struggle or who had some affliction, all of them talked about and showed me how they could adapt in ways where kind of other muscles or other resources came into play. You know, there's a mm -hmm. whole field that is really burgeoned in recent years. I'm guessing you're, you're very familiar with this Oprah called neuroplasticity. And it's all about yes. how incredibly good our brains are at rewiring yeah. themselves to kind of do certain things in a compensatory fashion. So it is well known that people with diminished vision often hear better. That's because their brains have rewired in a way to take advantage of the stimuli still available to them. People who don't hear well often see better. Juan Jose was sort of like a human story of that in action. He, he had gotten a sense, and this is I think kind of a metaphor for how to make the most of things. He'd gotten a sense of what, for instance, the woman he was dating looked like because with whatever little patches of vision he had, he kind of put them together like a Picasso in his mind. Um, he filled in the blanks with his imagination based on her voice and, and her touch. And he had made a mental picture that was probably not that inaccurate of, of, the, of the main woman, the main per romantic person in his life. And I just thought that is an example of, of nimbleness and of adaptation that gives me enormous hope and should give all of us hope. It also made me think about reading The Beauty of Dusk, made me think, did this do this for you all too? Differently about what blindness is, because I thought it always meant that you just were seeing blackness, that there was nothing, but that there are all kinds of variations of, of an absence of 2020 vision and you know, being blurred and being able to see some forms and being able to see some pieces of light, you know, can also be considered blindness. You discovered so much about people. Some you knew well, others started as strangers. And through that, you developed your sandwich board theory. Can you tell us about that? As I tried to put what had happened to me in context and tried to make sure I didn't fall into the, the trap, the abyss of self-pity, I, I looked around me in a whole new way and realized that most everybody I knew had had been through some kind of ordeal in their past was 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 going through a continuing struggle um, had enormous disappointments in their lives maybe like some of the people who were talking earlier in this program had anxiety and it occurred to me that if we all walked around with sandwich boards that listed some of the kind of central struggles in our life mine might say 
you know, lost vision in one eye, worry about going blind. Yours would say something different. Somebody else's would say something different still. But if we did that, none of us would be as prey to self-pity as we are because we would understand that struggle is sort of the default setting of a human life. And I also think we'd be much, much kinder and more patient with each other. We'd, we'd find our way to empathy much more quickly and robustly. Um, and, and, and I wish we would because I, I feel there's been a coarsening in our culture and in American life. And I think it's partly because we don't see each other clearly and we don't understand how kind of flawed and vulnerable all of us are. Yeah, there's just so much we don't understand about other people just by looking at someone. So Frank, you later write in the book, Why Me? And that there's a better question, of course, of why not me? And why should any of us be spared struggle when struggle is a condition that's more universal than comfort. I thought that was so powerful because I think we all go through the world, don't we all, thinking we're just supposed to be comfortable, particularly here in the United States, it's in our constitution, the pursuit of happiness. And so we're not actually prepared for struggle. We're not prepared when things show up that are not in our plans, but more of that happens than not. Can you address that for us, Frank? Oh, absolutely. I mean, everyone goes through every day trying to conquer some sort of weakness, trying to get over some sort of obstacle, feeling some measure of pain. And, and what that tells you is when in your life you encounter one of those most difficult moments, this is, this is normal. And what you have to focus on is, is how am I going to manage it and, and where am I going to find and draw from my strength? But any, any moment you spend saying, why me, is a wasted moment. It has happened. It happens to everybody. And the question is, how am I, a strong person, going to get through it? The other thing that I think is key here and is a key facet of vulnerability, to be vulnerable is to let go of artifice. And to let go of artifice is to live without fear because you're not worried about being exposed for who you really are because you have shared who you really are with the world. You know, when you open up and you feel rejected by other people or not getting the response that you want from other people, it often makes you feel that you shouldn't have been vulnerable or you get shamed by it. You know, Frank, there's something you write on page 268. This is actually one of my favorite quotes in the book. There are devastations that break a heart open and there can be beauty in the rupture, in the shards. Can you speak to that, Frank? Yeah, I think that's in a portion of the book where I'm talking to um, Cyrus Habib, who was Lieutenant Governor yeah. of Washington State and is blind yes. and who did something yeah. extraordinary a couple of years ago. And although he was someone who was likely to be the governor of the state of Washington at some point and was a rising young political star, he turned away from it all and became a Jesuit priest. And he's now a Jesuit. He's now yeah. in training to be a Jesuit priest. And he was talking about when you have he had lost his father. Um, who was very close to me, was talking about how in heartbreak, in that sort of rawness, in that, in, that, in that rupture, in those shards, you become so much more alert to other people's um, fears and wants and needs. You become so much more aware of what life still holds for you, as Sandy was just talking about, and that that's very beautiful. And that is, and that is, that is a gift. And it is a gift that comes often um, at the price of great struggle and great setback. Hmm. There are devastations that break a heart open and there can be beauty in the rupture, 
in the shards. Such a beautiful sentence, Frank. Man, you can write, I gotta tell you. You talk <laughs> about you. vulnerability and you talk about vulnerability in two distinct ways, opening up, being truthful about this human experience and all the hardship, anguish and grief that goes into it. But you also emphasize the importance of being positive, being grateful, looking at the glass half full, which, you know, we all hear that, but you learn to actually do that. <laughs> when you say we all hear that, it's absolutely true. There, there are a ton of cliches in this life, you know, like yes, the kind of glass yeah. half full, um, like the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. I, I realize cliches are actually kissing cousins uh, with verities. You know, they, they actually really do have a lot of wisdom for us if we just look past their overuse. And I feel that in almost any situation, you can take the fork that leads you toward feeling bad about things and being scared about things and worrying constantly, or you can take the other fork. Now, I, I don't want to make it sound that easy. There are situations in this life, there are hardships, there are um, um, people with a degree of, of struggle where it's not that simple as just reorienting your thoughts. But for a lot of us, it is about reorienting thoughts, doing that hard work and that doable work. And, and I just feel that, that this has given me a perspective where there's not a day that goes by where I don't see and savor um, small things that just went by me before. I mean, whether I'm walking in the woods with my dog and I see the sun glint off the creek in a certain way, and I realize that is a wonderful moment and I sit with it for a second. That's about seeing the glasses half full. And I think it's something that if we do every day and every hour, it, it, it enriches our lives so much. And yet at the end of the book, you say you have a confession. You say there are many days, even after all these years, even after all this practice, despite this ever plastic brain, when my vision does a number on me, I downplay that in part because I still have trouble describing the experience. Can you address that? Because, you know, as you're going through the book, you're thinking, oh my gosh, you handled this so well. You found <laughs> the right doctors. You realized that this was going to be a change in your life. You've now moved and started a whole nother life in North Carolina, everything, you know, like you handled it perfectly, but there had to be well, days where it wasn't perfect. Yeah. Oh, there, there are many days when it's not perfect. There are days when I you know, sit in my sweats and eat too many pieces of chicken and feel sorry for myself. I know now though, that there is a far side to that. And, and I let myself do that to an extent because I think you need to get that out of your system. And then I move on and go to the other kind of place that I've been talking about. But, but yeah, I, I think none of us should be a Pollyanna. None of us should minimize the hardship of some of what we're enduring and going through. But that's in part to get back to that place I talked about with Juan Jose. Don't minimize it because you also want to take the rightful measure of pride and confidence in getting through it. Yes. And as Frank has said so beautifully in The Beauty of Dusk, it, you know, it's all unpredictable. We don't know when. I remember Gail was here recently and I was reading parts of the book to her, Frank. And I said, oh, Frank Rooney says that, you know, our bodies are ticking time bomb. And Gail goes, well, what age does he say it starts ticking? I, I said, <laughs> I said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I said, I said, I said, Frank, Frank Marie says after 50. And then she goes, well, I would think that would be like after 60 or something. Then I went back and I reread the quote and it really is no age. I said, it's really no age at all. I think from the time you're born, you start, you start ticking, you're ticking time on, and you don't expect when something shows up, 
But when it does, what you let us know through the beauty of dusk is that we can handle it. So thank you, Frank. I'd love to end it right there. What a positive message. What a powerful reminder that with great vulnerability also comes great reward. And as long as we root ourselves in a kind of optimism, uh, I think grace shows up. Didn't you feel that grace showed up for you, Frank? Absolutely. And that's a, that's an, that's a perfect, perfect word for it. Yes. Thank you so much for being here today. The Beauty of Dusk is available for purchase wherever you buy or download your books. Thanks again for joining us, Frank Bruni. Thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Oprah's Conversation with Frank Bruni is part of Oprah Daily's The Life You Want class. You can watch the full class and participate in others in the monthly series on OprahDaily.com.